Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor at Grand Valley Church. We hope that this message helps you explore faith and connect with Jesus. Today we're continuing our series called Act Justly, where we are talking about justice. And this is not a topic just for followers of Jesus. This is a topic that affects everyone. How we live out justice in our lives affects the people around us. And so my perspective as we approach this is I am a pastor, so I am taking this from a faith perspective because that has shaped my understanding and led me to understand just how important justice is in our world today and how important justice has always been. And so last week we began this series by talking about the law of the ancient Israelites, the law of the Old Testament and how it was not sufficient to create a just society. And so when Jesus came, Jesus gave us a new standard of justice, a higher standard for us to live out when it comes to how do we act justly on an individual basis. And so today we're going to be looking at the larger systems of justice. And more specifically, we're going to try to answer this question of saying, what can we do when the systems that were designed to provide justice fail to create a just world? And so today, we're going to go back into the Old Testament, into the Hebrew Scriptures, and look at the ancient Israelites and look at how their systems that were meant to create justice were unable to do so. And so that means we're going to begin our service with another episode of Brian Oversimplifies Ancient History in 60 Seconds. And so we left off with Moses being in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. God has just given him the law, and that's where we're going to pick up for today's episode. So here we go. So Moses gets the law and takes the people to the edge of the promised land. They send in 12 spies, and the spies, when they come back, 10 of them say, it's impossible for us to take this land, and two of them say, no, God is with us. We can do this. But the people follow the 10 spies and they rebel against Moses and say, no, no, we can't. We have to go back to Egypt. We can't do this. And so God, as punishment for their rebellion, makes them wander in the desert for 40 years until that generation of Israelites has died off and their children are the ones who get to inherit the land. So they come to the edge of the promised land. Moses gets to look at it, doesn't get to enter it. Moses dies and Joshua takes over and leads the people into Israel, but they fail to drive out the other nations. And so this means Israel starts to mix with the other nations around them. They stop worshiping only Yahweh, and that leads to problems. And this cycle of history known as the judges, where the Israelites would be oppressed, God would raise up a judge, they would restore their freedom, then they would fall back into sin, and then that gets us all the way to the last judge named Samuel. I got it right on the dot that time. All right. So the last judge of Israel is a man named Samuel. And so Samuel... When he was a boy, he was dedicated to serve God and grew up in the temple under the high priest named Eli. And so Eli led Samuel and helped Samuel learn how to discern God's voice. And as Samuel grows up, he becomes this judge. And so the judges were sometimes military leaders, but more often they were decision makers. They weren't, it wasn't a hereditary position where someone's, where the title would be passed to your son afterwards. It was someone would be raised up by God for a time, for a season, to lead the nation and make decisions when those decisions had to be made. But what was unique about Samuel is he is also one of the prophets. And a prophet in the Old Testament was different than the New Testament gift of prophecy. The prophets in the Old Testament were able to be 
pure mouthpieces for God. They were able to speak on God's behalf as they were led by the Holy Spirit to lead the people and to tell them what they needed to hear from God. And so as Samuel gets elderly in his age, we get to 1 Samuel 8, and we're going to pick up the story here. And it says this, as Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. And so because of the corruption of Samuel's sons, we don't regard them as legitimate judges of ancient Israel. But they were causing injustice. They were perverting justice. They were accepting bribes. They were not leading the people the way a judge should. And so the elders of Israel meet at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. And they say, look, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. And Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. And the Lord replied, do everything they say to you, for they are rejecting me, not you. And so Samuel is torn in this moment because he has to make a decision. He has to choose, am I going to follow God or am I going to follow the will of the people? And so God actually gives Samuel permission to follow the will of the people. And God tells Samuel this. He says, they don't want me to be their king any longer. So do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And so Samuel goes back to the elders of Israel and starts to tell them that if you get a king, if you want a king of Israel, this king will draft your sons into their army and force them to fight or force them into conscripted labor for his building projects. He's going to take your daughter's to work in his vineyards and his bakeries. He's going to take the best of your crops and your produce and demand taxes as tribute. And then eventually Israel will beg for relief, but God will not save them from their own king. And that warning is very important for understanding the time period of the monarchy of Israel, both the united and the divided monarchy, that God actually warned Israel before they even had their first king that he will not rescue them from their own king. But as Samuel tells us, the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. And so Saul goes and follows God's leading and finds the person who he declares and anoints to be the king of Israel. And the person that they pick, his name is Saul. And Saul was not picked for his devotion to God or his merit as a leader. In fact, Saul is picked purely on physical appearance. He is described as the handsomest man in all of Israel, a full head taller than everyone else, and so he looks like what a king should look like. And so Saul becomes the first king, and he's not a great king. But after uh, God's anointing is removed from Saul and given to David, who you may know from the story of David and Goliath, When David was a younger boy, he fights Goliath to drive off the Philistines. And David becomes famous, and eventually Saul tries to kill David, and David spends a chunk of his life on the run before Saul is killed and David becomes king. But even David, as great as he was, and he was described as a man after God's own heart, but that description fit who David was at the time when he became king. But by the end of his kingship, David had sinned, David had led the people astray, David had 
personal moral failures in massive ways. And at the end of his life, he has really abdicated his role as king. But his son, Solomon, becomes king. And God grants Solomon wisdom beyond anything, beyond anyone else in the world. But Solomon does exactly what Samuel warned the people of many years earlier. Solomon amassed great wealth for himself. He had many wives and he allowed them to worship other gods right in Jerusalem. He imposed harsh taxes and he used forced labor to build the temple and other projects in Jerusalem. And so building the temple was an important turning point because up until this point, the Israelites had the tabernacle, which was a large elaborate tent, for lack of a better word, that traveled with the Israelites through the desert and was brought into Israel, into first at Shiloh, and then it was moved into Jerusalem when the temple was built. And this represented, this physical structure of the tabernacle that was replaced by the temple, was the physical representation of God's presence with his people. And so even though Solomon got to do big things like build the temple, Solomon still caused a lot of problems. And so in 1 Kings 11.11, we get this message that God gives to Solomon. It says, So now the Lord said to Solomon, Since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. And so after Solomon, the united monarchy of Israel has a basically a, a form of a civil war against themselves. And they split in half into the northern tribes keep the name Israel and the southern tribes take the name Judah. And this begins the era of the divided monarchy. Now, all the kings of Israel in the north until Israel gets conquered get described in scripture as doing evil in God's sight. They did not lead their people well. And in the south, in Judah, some of the kings were declared as doing justice, as doing what was right in God's eyes, And some of them even started religious reforms and started drawing the people back to the law, back to acting justly. But they, these religious reforms were short-lived. They did not create lasting change. And so what do you do when these systems, when the, the king of Israel and then later on the kings of Israel and kings of Judah were not able to follow the covenant and act out lasting change? They were not able to create justice for their people. Well, during these time periods, God kept sending prophets to warn Israel, to warn the people, and to warn the kings. And one of those prophets that we're going to look at as kind of representational of all the prophets is a man named Micah. And he was a prophet in Judah during the reign of three kings. And so in Micah 6, we get this summary of Micah's message, which in many ways is a summary of all the prophets. And it starts this way, Micah 6, 6, he says to the people and to the king, he says, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Now, these, what he's describing here, burnt offerings and yearling calves, those were prescribed sacrifices that would be brought to the temple as a sacrifice for the people's sin. These were prescribed sacrifices that the law talked about. But then Micah goes on and he goes a little further. He says, should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children 
to pay for our sins. And these sacrifices are not valid sacrifices. In fact, these were the sacrificial practices of the pagan religions around Israel. In fact, some of the kings of Israel in the north actually sacrificed their firstborn children in these other religious rituals that were not accepted by God. And so Micah is saying, well, should we do the sacrifices we're prescribed or should we do the sacrifices of the nations around us? And he's asking this question and then he concludes it with this. He says, no, O people, the Lord has told you what is good and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, depending on what translation you look at, they take that first phrase where it says, to do what is right. Many translations take that and summarize that little sentence to say, to do justice, to live with justice, to provide justice to those who are around. This is what God wants. In fact, the sacrificial system was never the first priority of the law. And eventually, when Jesus comes to earth, he will do away with the need for the continual sacrificial system by being that once and for all sacrifice for humanity. And so what Micah is telling the kings and telling the people that what God really wants is to worship God, to live in relationship with him, to love mercy, to love justice, to walk humbly, that is what matters. Now, the Old Testament prophets were often not listened to. Their messages were not heeded by the kings or the people. And so the Old Testament prophets reveal that Israel's failure to keep the covenant and their failure to provide justice to those in need of it was the cause of the second exile. And so the northern kingdom of Israel falls in 722 BC to Assyria. And then later on in 587 BC, Judah, the southern kingdom, is conquered by Babylon. And these, the nations being conquered, is the result of the kings not following God. So remember that warning that God gave to Samuel of saying, I will not rescue you from your own kings. Well, the fall of Israel and Judah was the result of the kings leading the people away from devotion to God and away from providing justice. Now, what this shows is that failure to provide justice happens on more than just an individual level. It can happen on a corporate larger level. And not just talking about the kingship of ancient Israel and ancient Judah, but part of the problem where this was happening was happening in the temple itself. And so there was one more prophet that we're going to look at before we carry on named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a prophet just before the fall of Judah. In fact, he lived through Judah and Jerusalem being conquered by Babylon. And in Jeremiah 7, he goes to the temple and he gives this warning to the people. He says, here is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, even now, if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. Jeremiah is coming with this message saying, if you do this, God will rescue you from Babylon. And it says this, but I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop your murdering and only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. 
Then I will let you stay in this land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. So Jeremiah has this message that just because the temple is there, this symbol of God's presence, you will not be safe by that building. In fact, what God requires is to live with justice. Now, corruption and abuse within the temple and the priesthood was not something that was new in Jeremiah's day. In fact, if we go all the way back, you remember a name I said earlier when I talked about Eli, the high priest, when Samuel was a young boy. All the way back to 1 Samuel, it tells us that Eli's sons, who were also priests, were corrupt and were stealing people's offerings and taking them for themselves when they came to worship at the temple. And so, When Judah falls in 587 BC, the temple is destroyed. But Babylon, the country that came and conquered Judah, then gets conquered by Persia. And the king of Persia, through a longer series of events that we're just kind of fast-forwarding through right now, allows a group of people of Judah, a group of Jewish people, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and later rebuild the walls. And that begins what's known as the Second Temple Era. So the first temple was built by Solomon, and the second temple is an era from 516 BC to 70 AD. And, but during that time period, the temple and the priesthood became corrupt. And when we fast forward all the way to Jesus' day, we have this encounter where Jesus goes to the temple to reveal the corruption that is happening in their religious systems that, again, were meant to provide justice. And so in Matthew 21, this is late in Jesus' ministry, Matthew tells us this, and this story appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it says this, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, when Jesus clears the temple, he is clearing out these money changers because when you came to the temple to give an offering, they would not accept it in the common coins that were circulated in the day. You could not give your offering in your own currency. You had to go to a money changer and exchange your coins for the accepted shekels and then donate those shekels into the offering boxes. Now, those money changers set the exchange rates to profit themselves and to pay the priests, and it was a money-making scheme because those shekels would just be given back to the money changer to collect more money from people coming to worship. And then the economy of Jerusalem was somewhat driven, a large portion of it was animals for sacrifice. And so if you traveled a long way to come to the temple to do your religious acts and your acts of devotion to God and bring a sacrifice, you could go there and buy these animals. And they would really push people to buy the animals that were there instead of bringing animals from your home area. And so this area where this happened is known as the court of Gentiles. This is the only area of the temple grounds that someone who is not a Jew is allowed to come and pray and worship to God, and it had been turned into a corrupt marketplace. In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian who lived shortly after Jesus, in his writings when he talks about this era of the temple, he even points out that there were four families that controlled the priesthood 
and became excessively wealthy during that time period on the backs of people who came to worship. And so when Jesus clears the temple, he is kicking out the money changers to allow this area that was meant for all people to be able to come and worship and pray to God to be available. And so Jesus is criticizing the corrupt nature of the temple in his day. And shortly a little later, if we jump ahead to Matthew 23, Jesus goes on this long speech where he is talking about the hypocrisy and the corruption in the temple and the religious leaders of the day. And we're just going to look at a couple verses in the middle of that, where Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. This is a harsh criticism. And something we need to note is that the only group that Jesus ever criticized in Scripture was religious leaders, people who should have known better if they were following the law. And so Jesus goes on in the next verse. He says this. He says, Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so what Jesus is pointing out is that these systems, this corrupt temple, comes down to corrupt people in that temple. But there's something that's happening in this verse, and when we take it from the Greek that it was written in into our English today, that we need to recognize a little bit. Because in the Greek of the New Testament, as it is written, there is only one root word that is translated as both righteousness and justice in English. And so when we think about the terms of righteousness and justice, we actually think of those as two separate things. We think about righteousness with a more personal application of being in a state where you are declared right with God. We think about things like personal devotions and personal spiritual practices are part of what flows out of being declared righteous by God. And when we think about justice, we think about how other people are treated, how we treat other people. Do we treat other people in ways that are right and good and honorable? And so we think about treating others with fairness and equality. And so righteous becomes a personal thing, and justice is an external treatment of others' thing. But remember, in the Greek, those are the same word. And depending on the context, it gets translated to either righteousness or justice for our English words and the definitions we use today. And so what that means is that for us today, when we think about righteousness and justice, we have created a spectrum between internal righteousness and the external justice of how we treat other people, despite that distinction not existing in the New Testament. We would say, you know, personal righteousness is on one side, justice and how we treat others is on the other side, and yes, these two things are related, but we treat them as two separate things. But in the New Testament, anywhere we see righteousness and justice, they are talking about the same thing. And so that means that whenever we see the word righteous in the New Testament, which the Greek word predominantly gets translated to, we need to pause and reread that verse and insert justice in its place. And so same thing when it says, you know, unrighteous needs to be replaced with unjust because it's the same root word of both. 
And so what I want to do is I want to take us back to Matthew 23, 28, this verse that Jesus says as he's criticizing the religious leaders. But I want us to take a moment and actually put us in the religious leaders' shoes and maybe say, what would this mean if this is being said to us right now? And I'm going to replace righteous with justice and, and kind of edit the grammar just to make the sentence structure work. So my translation of Matthew 23, 28 now reads this way. Outwardly, you pretend to show justice, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, suddenly that verse cuts a little deeper, doesn't it? Because that verse suddenly makes us wonder and look at ourselves. Have we only pretended to show justice to others? Have we only pretended to live our lives in ways that ensure that other people are treated in ways that are right and fair and honorable and good? But if we have only pretended to do that, what does that mean about the internal condition of our hearts? And that is a question I can't answer for anyone but myself. And so each one of us has to take this warning, this passage, and say, have I only pretended to show justice? Or have I lived my life and am I living my life now in a way that reveals justice to others? And this verse is just one of many examples in Scripture and warnings of injustice so that we don't follow in the footsteps of the unjust behavior and injustice that happens time and a time again in Scripture. And so when we look at the times, when we look at how the temple system became corrupt and was being used to extort money from people, we don't look at that as a prescription of how we ought to act. We, we need to know better than that. But we need to look at those as a description of what not to be, as a warning about it. And so people in power all through Scripture use their power to deny justice to those who deserve it. So if we go all the way back, Eli the high priest, his sons were stealing people's offerings Samuel's sons, who were appointed as judges, were taking bribes and perverting justice. Then if we fast forward ahead to Solomon, he amasses wealth for himself, and he conscripted people into forced labor, and he married many, many wives in political alliances, but then permitted them to bring their religious practices into Israel and built temples for them to worship their pagan idols. And then we have the prophets, like Micah, who warns against this and says, this is not how it's supposed to be. And then Jeremiah comes along and he warns the corrupt temple and priest saying, if you just do this, God will rescue you. But they can't do it. See, the religious leaders throughout the Old Testament and even the religious leaders during the first century, during the time when Jesus walked the earth, they had turned worship into profit. And they were only caring about the appearance of justice and not actual justice. And so I sometimes wonder when I look at this, could the same be said of us today? Could the same be said of the church today? Has the church done things in its past or is currently doing ways that perpetuate injustice? And when we look at church history, if we look at the last 2,000 years, or even the last hundred years. The sad truth is, is it doesn't take a lot of time to make a list of the injustice that has been perpetrated 
by followers of Jesus under the name of Jesus. And so that is something that even though we on a personal level were not part of, we are still called to repent of it. And so that leads to this question that I hope we wrestle with, and this is a difficult question to think about. But what are the systems of injustice that we are knowingly or unknowingly perpetuating? What are the places in our world today where injustice is thriving and we have turned a blind eye towards it? Or we know of it and we choose to dismiss it and say that's someone else's problem to deal with. And so as the church of Jesus today, and not just Grand Valley Church, as all the, the larger big C church of followers of Jesus everywhere worldwide, I believe that we are in a moment uniquely where our world is paying more attention to justice than it has in the past. And that is a good thing. But as it brings up and stirs up these things that we may not have recognized as injustice before, or maybe we recognize we have been complicit in that injustice being perpetuated, I believe that we are being called upon to repent of our involvement with that corporately, to repent of that personally, and then start asking these questions about what have we knowingly or unknowingly perpetuated. And so one of those questions that gets really difficult, and I'm just going to leave us with this question because it's a question we have to wrestle with how uncomfortable it makes us before we jump to a conclusion or jump to an answer. So I'm going to leave this message today on a moment of tension. And I want to ask us this, who was exploited in the past for me to have what I have? Who was exploited and was treated unjustly and unfairly so that we could have and build the society and the life that we have now? And the second part of that question is who is still being exploited or denied justice in our world today? And I'm not going to give the answers. I'm not going to give the parts in my heart because this is something that each one of us has to personally wrestle with. And so lastly, as we wrestle with that, as we maybe journal and recognize and we spend time praying and repenting of our involvement in that and asking God, okay, how can we do better? Because we know the standard of justice that Jesus came to give. When he used the example that we talked about in last week's message of the Good Samaritan, the man who was despised looked upon the beaten, naked man the man who was helpless and harmed and showed love to him in a way that was neighborly, that was not deserved in any way. And so Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, loving our neighbors as ourselves, loving God and as God's love for us leads us to love our neighbors means we must confront injustice where it exists. And so the last question I want to leave us with is how can we use our influence to ensure that justice is provided to those who need it? What voice do we have? How can we use our voices to amplify other voices that are calling for justice? And how can we be a force for justice in our world? Because we will always need systems of justice in our world. But those systems of justice can be fixed, they can be rebuilt, they can be strengthened, and we could achieve a just society if we desired it enough. 
And so let me end with just a, a word of prayer. God, I pray that as we wrestle with these questions, as we think about influence, as we think about justice, as we think about how people in the past have been exploited, how people are still exploited today, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would meet us as we sit in the sorrow and the tension of recognizing where injustice has thrived in our world. And God, I pray that you would lead us to be part of the solution, that you would lead us to use our voices to call for justice, that you would lead us to use our voices to amplify the voices of others who are further in this path of understanding justice than we are. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds to see injustice as it happens and to see how your higher standard of calling us to love our neighbors as ourselves can be such a radical and transformational way of our world being shaped and transformed, of your presence being revealed as we act justly and live justly with our lives. And so God, we ask that you would help us see the brokenness around us and help us see how we can be your hands and feet and part of restoring justice for all. In your name we pray, amen. Folks, next week we are going to continue in our series talking about justice. So I hope to see you online next Sunday. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you know of someone that would benefit from hearing the message you just listened to, would you do us a favor and share this podcast with them? And while you're at it, please consider subscribing to be the first to hear when our podcast is updated. If you want to join in on Sundays, our services are streaming online at 11 a.m. Central. To find out more about our church, go to mygrandvalley.ca and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for My Grand Valley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.